0: Hey there, quick announcement. I am still super tired after COVID and we're gonna slow down our release schedule a little till I'm back up to full strength. We'll have a little more about what's next at the end of today's story. All right, here we go. Big news. Investors have decided your butt is a gold mine. And here's how we got into this. Over the last few months, our producer, Emily Pisacreta has been keeping an eye on the arm and a leg inbox. And a while back, she saw an email from a listener who wanted our take on something. And the story that unfolded took us in unexpected directions. Emily?
1: Yep. The email came from a listener named Mariel. Mariel's in her late 30s. She works in marketing, and she lives with Crohn's disease. That's a chronic inflammatory
2: bowel disease. Every time I go see my gastroenterologist, I get signed up for some sort of unpleasant diagnostic test of some sort. And so I usually try to avoid it as long as possible.
1: Mariel used to live in Alabama, where she saw the same gastroenterologist for years. But recently, she moved to San Antonio, Texas, where she's from. And even though she might like to avoid it, the time does come for her to find a new gastroenterologist in Texas. And she makes an appointment.
2: My mother had gone to see someone in this practice, and she's recommended them.
0: And as Mariel expected, the doctor says she needs to have a test, a colonoscopy.
2: And this place does them right
1: in-house, which seems pretty cool. She doesn't need to go to another hospital or outpatient clinic. But when she makes the appointment, they let her know what she's on the hook for. And it's about
2: $1,100 upfront, Which seemed insane.
0: As in way more money than Maria would pay for colonoscopy where she used to live. And $800 of that is what they're calling a facility fee.
1: So she writes to us. And she's like, what's up with these guys? They want to charge me a lot of money. And why would I owe a facility fee? Like, what's the deal?
0: Facility fees. That is something we've covered before and something that comes up a ton in our inbox. So to recap, a facility fee is like a cover charge, usually from a hospital, basically just for walking in. And they can be wildly expensive, hundreds or even thousands of dollars. And they take a lot of folks by surprise.
1: And we get a ton of emails about this. Emergency room facility fees are the ones we hear about the most, but any place the hospital owns, they might charge a facility fee.
0: Yeah, it sucks. But it is quote unquote normal.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of what I expected to tell her. But I got curious and started Googling a little. And it turns out this place she went to not owned by a hospital. It's actually a private practice, and it's a big one, which Mariel had also noticed.
2: Here in San Antonio, they have locations all over the city. It's pretty much the only game in town. It's actually very difficult to find a gastroenterologist that is not a part of this practice. In her email, she wrote, quote, they basically run San
1: Antonio. I mean, it sounds like some kind of Western, right?
0: Right. But the more we looked into it, the more we realized, well, it's not a Western. And it's not just in Texas. It's all over the place. And it's not just about colonoscopies either. This is a story that is way bigger and weirder than that. This is An Arm and a Leg, a show about why healthcare costs so freaking much and what we can maybe do about it. I'm Dan Weissman. I'm a reporter and I like a challenge. So my job on this show is to take the most enraging, terrifying, depressing parts of American life and bring you a show that's entertaining and empowering and useful, with a lot of help from producer Emily Pisacreta, especially this time. Emily, I am super psyched you're taking on the lead reporter role for this story.
1: Well, you know how much I enjoyed following the breadcrumbs on this one.
0: Oh, yeah. So let's get to it. Mariel sees this doc who orders up a colonoscopy.
1: Right. And for the uninitiated, a colonoscopy is kind of an ordeal. It's basically a colon exam. And to do that, you start by spending an evening drinking like half a gallon of this laxative-laced Gatorade stuff to totally empty your colon. And then the next day, a doctor puts a camera up through your rectum to check out your colon health. Most people say they're no fun.
0: I have done this, can confirm. The Gatorade and laxative part is the crappiest. Oh, man. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) The story, the material just writes itself.
1: Okay, pace yourself. So right, colonoscopies. Not exactly anyone's idea of a fun night in. But they are considered an important screening tool for colon cancer. And actually, Katie Couric once had a colonoscopy on TV to promote colon cancer prevention. She watched the results in real time under light sedation. Have a pretty little colon.
0: (laughs) Yeah, she makes it sound almost fun. I mean, that is talent. Respect.
1: I know. Fun fact, while we're on this public health digression, because of the Affordable Care Act— When the purpose of your colonoscopy is to screen for those cancerous polyps, it's supposed to be covered 100% by your insurance.
0: Fun fact for another time, our inbox suggests that may not always be the case.
1: But back to Mariel in Texas. That kind of routine screening is not what she needed. Her doctor would be looking for changes in her colon related to her Crohn's disease. And like everything we talk about on this show, the price for that kind of colonoscopy varies wildly.
0: As Mariel was finding out. This place was looking to charge about three times what she was used to. And they seemed to her like the only game in town. So, Emily, you started checking that out.
1: Mm-hmm. That was fun. I googled San Antonio gastroenterologist and got a map with a bunch of dots, duh. And clicking around, I noticed that they're all locations run by basically just two practice groups.
0: And when you googled them, both of them turned out to be part of the same bigger group.
1: Texas Digestive Disease Consultants, which, it turns out, is part of a group that operates in lots of states called GI Alliance.
0: Whoa, it's like a Russian doll.
1: Yes, and this whole Russian doll of consolidated physician practices is owned and operated by a private equity firm called Wad Capital Partners.
0: Okay, wait. Private equity?
1: Yep, familiar words. Because we've heard about them in other contexts. Companies getting bought and sold, maybe sometimes going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that private equity has very much found its way into healthcare as well, which we have actually covered before on this show in the context of surprise bills.
0: Surprise bills. This is when you go to a hospital, get seen by somebody who's not on your insurance, and surprise, you get a great big bill. Surprise bills have mostly been outlawed now, and that took years. Back in 2019, I talked with someone who was lobbying to ban them. Claire McAndrew was with a group called Families USA.
3: No, surprise billing is not an accident. It is a business model for private equity companies. When you go to the hospital, there are staffing companies figuring out how to make sure the hospital has the number of doctors it needs every day. There are private equity firms that have been purchasing up those staffing companies. And those private equity companies have figured out that You know, lo and behold, a surprise out-of-network bill is bigger than an in-network bill.
0: So private equity, the folks who brought us surprise bills as a business model. And now that we're bumping into these private equity folks again, it's a good time to get a little more familiar. Like, what exactly is private equity? I mean, it's a phrase that gets tossed around a lot, like hedge fund and other venues for, you know, investors with lots of money.
1: Who hope to make big profits. But they're not all quite the
0: same thing. Yeah, you've been talking with experts here. Have I got this right? I think a private equity is like the house flippers of investment funds. So instead of just putting money into a company, they often take a majority interest. So they're actually running things.
1: Yeah, basically. And then they go in and do a big rehab of the way the business is run. They figure it'll take a few years, like three to five, and then they go and sell it. But instead of a fancy kitchen, the main selling point is much bigger profits.
0: Which raises the question, what does a gut rehab look like for a medical practice? Like, what do we get instead of a fancy kitchen?
1: Well, the surprise bill thing was one example.
0: Yeah, this does not exactly scream curb appeal to me.
1: And I've talked to some people who have been watching this financial rehab and medicine thing closely. That's right after this.
0: This episode of An Arm and a Leg is produced in partnership with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit newsroom covering healthcare in America. Kaiser Health News is not affiliated with the giant healthcare outfit Kaiser Permanente. We'll have a little more information about Kaiser Health News at the end of this episode. So, private equity companies are doing their financial rehab thing in a lot of different medical specialties.
3: And I talked to someone who's been tracking the phenomenon. My name is Jane Zhu. I'm a primary care physician and a health services researcher on faculty at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon.
1: So Dr. Zhu, Jane, she works in an academic setting. Looking at private equity is her research. But that research was inspired by experience. The experience of her friends from med school who joined private practices.
3: And then a couple years later, unbeknownst to them, their senior partners may have made a decision to sell to a private equity owner, and their sort of career trajectories, the way that they thought they would be practicing, all of those things would have changed overnight.
1: So Jane was like, huh, this is a thing. And here's what she's seen. Private physician practices are getting bought up by private equity firms across a bunch of fields.
3: Specialties like dermatology or gastroenterology or ophthalmology.
0: And Jane told you the mechanics are kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, she says private equity firms usually start by acquiring a majority stake in one, especially well-performing practice
3: or group of practices in a geographic area.
0: Yeah, of course, there's a term for this. They call it a platform practice.
3: It's well-established. It has some brand reputation. It has good market reach. There may be multiple sites. It has Lots of patients that are already affiliated with that practice, and they buy that up. And there are opportunities
0: for consolidation. Opportunities for consolidation, meaning buy up more practices and merge them. They're looking for economies of scale. Bigger is more powerful. You can buy stuff in bulk, drive tougher deals with insurance companies to get more money, maybe charge more across the board.
1: And don't forget, drive down operating costs, whatever it takes. Basically, increase the margins and make
3: it quick. They're looking at short to medium term horizons for investment. So we're talking like three to eight years on average. Jane has watched this happen
1: in a number of fields over the last decade. Before gastroenterology, private equity went big into dermatology, ophthalmology, dentistry. And she says the reason investors like these specialties is the same reason they like gastroenterology. They all do a high volume of in-office procedures.
3: Lots of people are needing injections in the eye for macular edema, and lots of people need colonoscopies, and lots of people need skin biopsies. And these are things that will only grow in volume over time as the population ages. Yeah, because did you know
1: we are living in the golden age of older rectums? Oh, man. (laughs) That's how a private equity investor put it in a gastroenterology trade publication. Older folks are supposed to get colonoscopies on the regular. And we've got more older folks than we used to, especially since the quote-unquote older folks category got expanded recently to include folks as young as 45. So for private equity to not invest is like leaving cash on the table.
0: Or deep inside someone's colon.
1: (laughs) Exactly. A guy named Praveen Southram read the same article.
0: So, (laughs) it was so strange. And Praveen... He wrote the book on private equity and gastroenterology because, of course, there's a book. And, of course, you found the guy who wrote it.
1: Praveen runs a tech and consulting company for physician practices, basically helping them with back-end office stuff, business-side stuff. Gastroenterologists are kind of a specialty of his.
0: So he published this book in 2019 because the docs he met through his work needed it because selling their practices to private equity? That was one of the big questions on their minds. know Trying to figure this out or trying to understand uh, what an option for them, uh, should they go for it? What are the pros and cons? Yeah, and Praveen's just talking about the pros and cons for these gastroenterologists. He's not asking whether it's good or bad for society if private equity gobbles them up. He calls that a train that's already left the station.
1: Mm -hmm. And Praveen has interviewed a ton of doctors who are often receptive to selling their practices to private equity companies. Some were even eager, because even though it looks like a golden age to certain investors, a lot of doctors who own these practices are having a tough time.
0: Because Praveen says before private equity got involved, and since, there's another bunch of players with deep pockets, buying up practices, consolidating markets, getting economies of scale, and generally making it hard for the little guy to compete. And that's hospital chains. So these doctors are competing with big, intense sharks. So then they're thinking, okay, you know, I I got to survive. So if I got to survive, then I will either have to sell myself to the hospital or what is the alternative? The alternative is private equity.
1: So it's go hospital or go private equity. And Praveen says private equity is really good at making their case, telling them they'll let the doctors do the medicine and the business people do the business.
0: So that's their pitch to doctors, and then there's the rest of us. And Emily, you've been talking to some experts, and they do not love this deal for us.
1: No, and a lot of them say when private equity gets involved, healthcare gets more expensive and it gets worse. And granted, gastroenterology is still a pretty new area for private equity, but in fields where they've been around for longer, we've seen some evidence.
0: Take dentistry. Our pals at Kaiser Health News had a story recently called Why Your Dentist Might Be Pushy, that is, why they might be pushing expensive procedures you don't actually need, like a $1,200 crown instead of a $100 filling. One big reason they mention, corporate and private equity ownership.
1: Yeah, and nursing homes may be the starkest example. Last year, a big study from the National Bureau of Economic Research found that when private equity owned a nursing home, things were different. The bills were significantly higher. Patients were a lot more likely to get prescribed antipsychotic drugs, And they are more likely to die in their first three months. Whoa.
0: And then there's the whole surprise bills as a business model. I mean, I don't know if this needs saying, but private equities focus on juicing profits quickly. It does not seem to line up with what most of us want, which is, you know, decent care at a price we can afford without having to make a whole hobby of it.
1: And for Mariel from Texas, whose note got us started on this whole story, the experience so far just makes her miss her old doctor.
2: I, like, loved him. He was caring, and his practice was very small, and he, I mean, would do things like give me his cell phone number to call him. I felt like he really cared about me as a person.
1: But with the guys who run San Antonio?
2: I mean, it's very organized. I will give them that. You know, you get there, they sign you in, the office staff is very organized and on top of things, but... Very much is apparent that it is a business, and they are in it to make money. But Dan,
1: when we spoke recently, she had some good news. She finally found another gastroenterologist in San Antonio, one who specializes in Crohn's disease, at UT Health San Antonio. And it took a couple months and a ton of phone calls, but... I did end
2: up getting my colonoscopy, thank goodness.
1: I know you were so looking forward to it.
2: (laughs) Yes, such delightful.
1: The bills are still coming in, and whether she landed a better deal turns out to be not so clear. But the most important part, doctors checked her out and said things are looking good.
0: Okay, well that part I like to hear especially in the context of this episode about investment firms taking over medical practices. It is a big story and one we will be coming back to. So, you know, let's get ready. But first, medical debt has been in the news recently and it has sounded like good news. Like the credit reporting bureau said they would take a lot of medical bills off of people's credit reports. And the White House says it's going to crack down on some shady debt collectors. Question is, are we talking here about a glass getting half full or a drop in the bucket? That's next time on an arm and a leg. little programming note, for the next little while, we'll be releasing episodes every three weeks instead of every other week. Partly because, unfortunately, I'm still getting my strength back after having COVID. And partly because late last year, we started a whole new enterprise with the first aid kit newsletter. And honestly, that was a big bite. Even before I got sick, we were running a little behind on everything. We need to take a minute, regroup, make it all sustainable. I will have more updates for you as soon as I can. Meanwhile, we'll catch you in three weeks. Till then, take care of yourself. This episode of An Arm and a Leg was produced by Emily Pisacreta with help from me, Dan Weisman, and Julia Ritchie, and edited by Marion Wang. Daisy Rosario is our consulting managing producer. Adam Raymunda is our audio wizard. Our music is by Dave Weiner and Blue Dot Sessions. Gabrielle Healy is our managing editor for Audience. She edits the First Aid Kit newsletter. And B. Bosco is our consulting director of operations. This season of An Arm and a Leg is a co-production with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit news service about healthcare in America. It's an editorially independent program of the Kaiser Family Foundation. KHN is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, the big healthcare outfit. They share an ancestor, the 20th century industrialist Henry J. Kaiser. When he died, he left half his money to the foundation that later created Kaiser Health News. You can learn more about him and Kaiser Health News at armandalegshow.com slash Kaiser. Diane Weber is national editor for broadcast at Kaiser Health News. She is editorial liaison to this show. Also, our pals at KHN make other podcasts you might like. For instance, if you want the latest on the politics of healthcare, you may already follow What the Health, hosted by KHN's Chief Washington Correspondent, Julie Rothner. Every week, she brings together reporters from top outlets, you know, the New York Times, Politico, CNN, like that, to break down the latest. That's at khn.org slash podcasts. Thanks to Public Narrative, a Chicago-based group that helps journalists and nonprofits tell better stories for serving as our fiscal sponsor, allowing us to accept tax-exempt donations. You can learn more about Public Narrative at www.publicnarrative.org. And those donations support this show. If you're not a donor yet, we would love to have you. Come on by to www.armandlegshow.com slash support. Thank you.